Section 37 of Monday Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tavarish. Monday Tales by Alphonse Daudet. Translated by Marion McIntyre. Section 37. The Pope is Dead. My childhood was passed in a large provincial town, which is bisected by a river crowded with crafts and full of stir and bustle. There I acquired, while still young, a fondness for voyages and the passion for a nautical life. There is one especial corner of the quay near a certain footbridge, Saint-Vincent, it is called, and I never think of it even today without emotion. I remember that sign nailed to the end of a yard, Cornet, boats to let, the little staircase which went down even to the water, slippery and black from frequent wettings, the flotilla of little boats freshly painted with gay colors, standing in a row at the foot of the ladder, rocking gently side by side, as if the charming names which decorated the stern and white letters, the hummingbird, the swallow, really lent the boats themselves new buoyancy. Long oars glistening with white paint were drying against the wall, and among them walked Father Cornet, with his paint pot and big paint brushes. His face was tanned, furrowed, and wrinkled with innumerable tiny depressions, like the river itself when an evening breeze springs up. Oh, Father Cornet, that worthy man was the tempter of my childhood, my joy and sorrow combined, my sin, my remorse. How many crimes he led me to commit with those boats of his! I played truant from school, I sold my books. What would I not have sold for an afternoon's boating? All my exercise books at the bottom of the boat, my jacket off, my hat pushed back, a delicious breeze from the water fanning my hair, I pulled the oars firmly, my brows knitted in a frown, trying to cultivate the air of an old sea-dog. As long as I was in the town, I kept to the middle of the river, at equal distance from either bank, where the old sea-dog might have been recognized. What a sense of triumph I felt, mingling with the movement of boats and rafts and floats, loaded with wood, steamboats moving side by side, but never touching each other, though separated merely by a slender strip of foam. And then there were heavier boats which had to turn about to follow the current, while a host of smaller ones were obliged to move out of their way. Suddenly the wheels of a steamboat would begin to churn the water around me, a huge shadow would loom above me. It was the bow of a boat loaded with apples. Look out, youngster! A hoarse voice shouted. Dripping with perspiration, I tugged away, entangled in that current of life upon the river which mingled incessantly with the life of the street at every bridge and footbridge, while reflections from passing omnibuses darkened the water as I pulled my oars. The current of the river was very strong about the arches of the bridge, and there were such eddies, such whirlpools, among them that famous one to which the name of Death the Deceiver had been given. 
you can understand that it was no light matter for a child to pilot himself through that part of the river, pulling with the arms of a twelve-year-old and no one to hold the rudder. Sometimes I chanced to encounter the chain. As quickly as possible I would catch on to the end of the line of boats as it was tugged along and letting my oars lie motionless, spread like wings about to alight, I allowed myself to be borne onward by that swift, silent movement which broke the river's surface into long ribbons of foam, while the trees along the bank and the houses upon the quay glided by us. A long, long distance ahead I could hear the monotonous turning of the screw, and on one of the boats, where a tiny thread of smoke was rising from a low chimney, I could hear a dog's bark. At such times I really fancied that I was aboard ship and off for a long cruise. Unfortunately, those meetings with that line of boats were rare. Most of the time I rowed and rowed through the hours when the sun was hottest. Oh, that noonday sun beating straight down upon the river! I can still seem to feel it burning me. Everything glistened beneath those fiery rays, in that dazzling, sonorous atmosphere which rested a floating mass above the waves vibrating with their every movement, with every dip of my oars, and from the fisherman's lines raised, dripping from the water, I could see vivid gleams as from some surface of polished silver. Then I would close my eyes while I rode on. From the energy of my efforts and the bound of the waves beneath my boat, I thought for the moment that I must be moving very rapidly, but upon raising my head to look, I was sure to see the same tree, the same wall facing me from the river bank. At last, completely exhausted, covered with perspiration, crimson with heat, I succeeded in leaving the city behind me. The din that came from bathhouses, washerwomen's boats, and boat landings grew fainter. The bridges were farther apart upon the widening river. A few suburban gardens and a factory chimney were reflected here and there. On the horizon the fringe of verdant islands fluttered, and now, unable to go any farther, I would pull close to the bank. There, in the midst of the reeds, full of buzzing life, overcome with the sun, fatigue and that oppressive heat, which rose from the water dotted with great yellow flowers, the old sea-dog would have an attack of the nosebleed, which lasted for hours. My voyages always ended with that catastrophe. But then one must not ask too much. Delightful enough these excursions were to me. But the terrible part was the return, the moment when I must enter the house. No matter how fast I pulled the oars as I rowed homeward, I always arrived too late and long after school was out. Impressed with the decline of day, the sight of the first few gaslights twinkling through the mist, the soldiers' retreat, my apprehension and remorse grew ever greater as I neared home. 
I envied the people I met tranquilly turning homeward, my head dull and heavy, full of the effects of sun and water, a murmur of seashells in my ears, I ran on, my face already reddening with the lie I was about to tell. For on each occasion it was necessary to confront that terrible, where were you, which awaited me upon the threshold. It was that question which terrified me most upon my homecoming. Standing upon the stairs, I must answer upon the spur of the moment and always have a story ready, something to say so astounding, so overwhelming, that surprise must cut short all further questioning. This left me time to enter, to regain breath, and for the sake of that moment I counted no cost too dear. I invented sinister events, revolutions, terrible things, one whole side of the city was burning. The railway bridge had collapsed and fallen into the river. But the most startling of all my inventions was the following. That evening I reached home very late. My mother, who had awaited me a whole hour, was on the watch standing at the head of the stairway. "'Where have you been?' she exclaimed. Tell me who can, from what source children obtain the impish ideas that enter their heads. I had prepared no excuse, discovered none, for I had returned too quickly. Suddenly a wild thought occurred to me. I knew that dear mother was very pious, most zealous of Roman Catholics, and I answered her with a breathless haste born of a deep emotion, Oh, mamma, if you knew... Knew what? Has anything happened? The Pope is dead. The Pope is dead, repeated my poor mother, and very pale she leaned against the wall. I passed quickly into my own room, somewhat frightened at my success and the enormity of the lie, and yet I had the courage to persist in it to the end. I still remember that subdued funereal evening. My father looked very grave. My mother was prostrated. They talked around the table in low voices. I kept my eyes lowered all the while but my escapade had been so completely forgotten in the general sorrow that no one thought further of it. Each one was pleased to call to mind some virtuous trait of that poor Pius the Ninth. Then by degrees the conversation wandered and reverted to papal history. Aunt Rose began to speak of Pius the Seventh, whom she recalled very well having seen him when he passed through the midi, in the back of a post-chaise between gendarmes. They recalled the famous scene with the emperor, comédiante, tragédiante. For the hundredth time I heard them describe that terrible scene ever with the same intonations, the same gestures, with all those stereotyped expressions which are a part of family tradition, as such bequeathed to the next generation, remaining with it, and like some monastic history, preserving all their puerilities and localisms. Notwithstanding, the incident never appeared to me more interesting than upon this occasion. 
With hypocritical sighs, with questionings, and an assumption of interest, I listened to every word, but all the time I was thinking to myself, Tomorrow morning, when they learn the Pope is not dead, they will be so glad that no one will have the heart to scold me. And as I thought of that, my eyes closed, in spite of my efforts to keep them open, and visions of tiny boats, painted blue, appeared, and every nook along the sawn drowsing beneath the heat, and argyronets darting forth their long feet in every direction, cutting the glassy water like diamond points. End of section 37